Well, thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday night, we find out why kids are tossing aside their smartphones, rolling back the years to simpler times and simpler devices such as flip phones. She is one of the hottest stars in country music these days, cleaning up at the recent Academy of Country Music Awards. Her new album, Bell Bottom Country, is a massive hit, and she's even in the hit TV series, Yellowstone. Now, Lady Wilson is about to hit stages big and small across Western Canada, and she joins me to talk about all of it. Well, video couldn't kill the radio star, but EVs are now taking aim at AM. Several automakers are looking at getting rid of AM in EVs because electric motors apparently can interfere with AM radio frequencies, making it sound staticky over the airwaves. There has already been a backlash. We look at what could happen next. But first, video journalist and former wildland firefighter Kyle Britton has spent days on the front lines of raging wildfires in northern Alberta. He tells us what he saw and why this year's fires have already been so destructive. First, let's uh, let's tackle the Alberta wildfires as they stand tonight. Some good news. I was reading earlier an evacuation order for the west central Alberta town of Drayton Valley has been lifted after crews succeeded in taming a nearby wildfire. Residents who fled almost two weeks ago will now be allowed to return home. But officials warn danger in western Canada is ongoing. Wildfires continue to keep thousands of people out of their homes right across Alberta. Uh, 24 of 86 active fires in that province remain out of control tonight. And imagine this, Alberta Forestry Minister Todd Lowen said today uh, that an email was sent to all provincial government employees asking those with firefighting experience to volunteer to help out. It shows just how serious this has been. Obviously, we're in a very severe uh, situation right here in Alberta. The, the the widespread fires, the amount of them across the whole province uh, is, is affecting a lot of people, a lot of communities. And so we, we're pulling out all the stops that we can. Yeah, roughly 2,500 people are fighting those fires throughout the province. Meantime, to the west in B.C., the B.C. Wildfire Service says parts of British Columbia are already in the midst of their, quote, core fire season. It's May the 16th, months ahead of schedule. Flames are 20 to 25 kilometers away from the, the town of Fort St. John, forcing the city of 21,000 to be on high alert for a possible evacuation, although the weather is offering some temporary reprieve there, at least for the next 24 hours or so. 400 fire personnel, 22 pieces of heavy equipment, 22 helicopters were in the vicinity of four fires close to that city uh, today. So it has been a very uh, hairy situation in a lot of communities right across the interior of BC, northern BC and Alberta, obviously. Kyle Britton is a freelance journalist, a video journalist and former wildland firefighter himself. He's been on the front lines of this wildfire crisis. He posted this to Twitter earlier today. Okay, things are getting pretty intense out here. I wanted to share what this is like in real time. You can see that very ominous black smoke, that column of smoke just rising very quickly. Once that fire sort of started to blow up, it evacuated all the low-level smoke around here at the ground. It's very clear. Uh, All the smoke just kind of got sucked up into this fire. I've got ashes raining down out of the sky as well onto me and you can feel the air down low here moving into the fire uh, just very intense you can see it burning over there on the horizon that flame front moving toward me here i'm standing in a lease site without any vegetation around me good escape route out of here i'm going to be leaving very shortly but you can see just a very strong wildfire here in northwestern alberta uh, moving slowly toward my location yeah, that gives you a sense of just what, I mean, the, the images themselves look like look like an inferno. Kyle Britton is back in Calgary tonight, and he joins me now. Uh, Kyle, thanks so much for your time. Good evening. 
Uh, still smoky there tonight. What's the situation like out your window? Uh, yeah, very smoky. And I, you'll have to excuse me if I have to stop and cough a little bit because I'm, you know, I was covering these wildfires in northern Alberta and wasn't having any issues with the smoke until today, oddly enough, when I headed back to Calgary. Like even just the HVAC system is sucking in smoky air into our kind of our condo hallway. So I'm sure that's the same story for a lot of Calgarians right now. It's just really gross. It's making you feel like, you know, all your mucous membranes are irritated and coughing and sniffling. It's just it's no fun. Wow. So it was worse for you, at least lung-wise, where you are now compared to where you were, uh, you know, just the other day with right in front of those fires. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, oddly enough, when this fire behavior is really intense on the ground, most of the air is rising at that time of the day. And, right. you know, like like I was saying in that, that little hit there, um, it literally cleared out all the low-level smoke that was around the, the main smoke column. It's just like a big vacuum, right? So the air really close to the fire was pretty good. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're dealing with several days of kind of pooled accumulated smoke in the low levels that kind of like just slashed across Alberta as a cold front came down this morning. And a lot of that smoke kind of really congealed um, into that cold front. So we're still kind of clearing that out of Southern Alberta. So yeah, real, real decreases in air quality with that cold front. Yeah, you were showing some incredible satellite images on your Twitter feed the other day of, of the columns of smoke well above. I mean, you get get a good idea of what you're talking about. I mean, you've seen this in the past. How would you describe the wildfires so far this year? Because from an outsider's point of view, they seem incredibly intense. Not like the Fort Mac fire, but so many of them burning at once and a lot of them really fierce. You know, I've never seen a fire season like this in Alberta. I mean, in BC, I covered the fires in uh, summer 2021, which is a horrific season there as well. Um, Of course, many Albertans feeling the effects of that with the smoke. But uh, yeah, this year, I mean, May is fire season in Alberta. So we typically get like a window of time, but you know, after the snow melts, but before the sap gets up into the trees, we call it the spring dip. And um, basically all the coniferous trees are extremely dry and they're very flammable. So, I mean, we've had a whole whack of, kind of like antecedent conditions leading up to this season, which started last summer. It was really dry at the end of the summer and through the fall. We had a very dry winter. And then it was kind of like a really slow start to the spring, but suddenly the pattern changed and we had like record-breaking temperatures, a big wind event, which is kind of what started this whole fire flap of, you know, two Fridays ago. And then, you know, we had a second heat wave and we're kind of in the midst of that. Like we've had it like we're having a little bit of reprieve right now, but it's going to heat's going to build back in this week. So, I mean, everything kind of coming together and, and causing, you know, a really horrific fire situation in the uh, boreal region, northern Alberta, northeast B.C., northern Saskatchewan, and even getting into Manitoba and the Northwest Territories now. What's it been like for those you've been talking to on the ground? Because clearly this is a really tough time for anyone trying to fight these fires. We were listening to uh, the province of Alberta calling on any provincial provincial workers with firefighting experience to volunteer. That gives you a real idea of just uh, of just how bad it is and, and, and just how, I mean, in these situations, it's not hard to be understaffed, right? I mean, it's it just... It's just the reality of it. I, you think about the size, the sheer size of the land in northern Alberta, northern BC, Saskatchewan. It's a big area. And then you've got, you know, over 24 out of control wildfires. They're very big, especially after that big wind event we had a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then you got to allocate those resources accordingly. So, you know, they're going to prioritize them according to human life, communities, uh, watersheds, and soils. Uh, natural resources and infrastructure in that order and so it's just kind of like constantly juggling things now you get a wind shift and you got the flames burning toward town when they weren't yesterday and so we got to pivot we got to take you off this fire 
and put you on the other one. But the, the problem is, was being on the ground near these fires, and I can speak from uh, personal experience being a former wildland firefighter, is that you just can't get anywhere near these flame fronts. I mean, the flames are just so intense, uh, especially when you have this uh, this hot, dry, windy weather. Your flame flame lengths are twice the height of the trees. So, you know, those are 200-foot flames we're talking about. You can't get within a several hundred meters of that without feeling the heat, the radiant heat coming off the flame. So, I mean, and I've been witnessing that that um, in northern Alberta the last couple of days. I was up uh, near Grand Prairie and Fox Creek on those wildfires there. And, yeah, just really intense fires. The one saving grace we had was that there wasn't much wind over the last three days or so. That changed last night with the cold front, and that, of course, was what drove the uh, – the, the 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 most recent evacuations in the Valley View and Swan Hills areas. What's the mood? I mean, you've been talking to people, I'm sure, as you've been out. I mean, what are what are what what are people's moods like? Uh, I, I mean, we obviously heard a lot from people who had been evacuated uh, two Friday, you know, nearly two Fridays ago now, or you know, a week and a half ago now, and how difficult that was. But what's been the overall mood in the places you've been in? It must be very very tense, given how volatile the situation is. Yeah, tense is the right word. I mean. Wildfire weather is definitely the most difficult type of weather for most people. I mean, not only it, it, you know, its effects are felt far and wide. You've got toxic smoke blowing everywhere. It's like we didn't hear in, in Calgary and Edmonton yesterday. It was crystal clear skies. Like, you know, people have been hearing about forest fires in northern Alberta, but, you know, it's like not affecting me at all. Now everyone's thinking about it because it's we can smell the smoke from these fires. But if you're in these these communities, these municipalities across much of northern Alberta, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know that you're living in these communities that are basically just an island surrounded by fuel. And so, I mean, you're already kind of vigilant this time of the year. But, yeah, I mean, evacuees, uh, you know, uh, hotels are full all over the place. And, and uh, it's just it is a very stressful time. And it's it's quite traumatic. I'm sure a lot of folks have memories of what, you know, other of other tent seasons. Like, like you think of 2011 when a fast-moving wind-driven fire burnt down a third of Slave Lake. Or 2016, of course, with Fort McMurray you know, costliest disaster in Canadian history. Like Northern Alberta is wildfire country, and this year is certainly no exception. So we are seeing that um, in, in the public is just kind of, I think there's a there's a, a state of heightened vigilance right now. We've got that province-wide fire ban and the, um, yeah, so it's just, it's very, it's very tricky right now. You posted something interesting on social media late today, just about the longer term, what we're witnessing here longer term and, and how, you know, it seems like these, heavy fire seasons are happening more frequently and part of it has to do with how we've treated fires in the past and we've kind of set ourselves up for failure to some extent uh what can we possibly do now do you think why is that by the way why is that well yeah so basically what i had just posted there on twitter was just some thoughts on on why we're seeing things get so bad with these fire seasons and why we're seeing so many more big fire seasons in, in recent years. And I mean, obviously this is a trend that bears watching over time because, you know, anything climate related, you tend to need the larger the sample size, the better. But um, what we have seen is, uh, you know, we've had a, an approach in the past. And I, I, things are getting a little bit better, but we're kind of behind the game now um, with wildfire management with being, you know, uh, basically just initial attack, get in there, put the fire out and, you know, to, to obviously, we're just thinking, well, we want to protect human resources or whatever are all of our assets that are kind of scattered out throughout the prairie or the, sorry, the forest region and Northern mm-hmm. Alberta, of course, lots of industry. We've got lots of oil and gas, lots of logging up there. So, you know, it was just like put out the fire. And we found that over, you know, decades of doing that, 
actually starts to decline. You start to see over overcrowding in the forest. You start to see a lot of that dead organic material collecting on the forest floor. And then you're, you're basically a powder keg for, you know, you get a hot, dry, windy season. And uh, th- these fires are, are so much more intense. I mean, wildfire is a normal and natural part of the forest ecosystem, especially in the boreal forest region. I mean, our forests have adapted to periodic episodes of wildfire that can kind of help clear out all that dead forest floor material, open up the canopy, get the sun shining back on the forest floor and kind of regenerate life. And uh, so you take that sort of combination of, you know, forest management practices for wildfire management practices for several decades and, uh, you know, humans continuing to spread into the forest regions, into wildlands, increasing our chances for negative interactions with wildfire. And then, of course, with a climbing uh, climate change, we have uh, humans are have been exacerbating the natural cycle of climate change, which is occurring. Uh, things have been accelerated greatly. So we tend to see with that type of climate change, those effects to be amplified in more northern latitudes. So, you know, the further north you get in the northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, you're going to see more, uh, you know, amplified climate change in those areas. And so that, of course, covers most of the boreal regions of northern Canada. So, I mean, this is why we're seeing um, increases in fire behavior, the you know, an increase in these fire seasons, the length of the seasons, the potential for what we call atmospheric blocking patterns that can lead to a greater likelihood of prolonged extreme heat and dry weather, right? So this is just, it just naturally follows that you're going to have um, extreme fire seasons with this kind of perfect storm of, of, uh, of factors. Yeah, the way you describe it, you put all that together and we see what we see. We see what you saw this week. What, what are you up to now? What, are you going to head back out? Or are you going to put your feet up for a little bit or at least try to try to take a deep breath in all that smoke in Calgary tonight? Yeah, i definitely going to take a break for a few days. It was pretty intense up there. Um, the, the main thing is that early on in these, these events, you've got good visibility. It makes sense to go in there and try to document, get those visuals as safely as possible. Uh, but once you have that kind of reservoir of smoke everywhere, not only does it completely get, you know, take away your visibility, but the air is just toxic to breathe. So, you know, until things kind of clear up a little bit, I'll be kind of uh, avoiding that area. And in the meantime, I mean, it's great to, it's great the work that you do at least to try to call attention to this, to this stuff, because, you know, there's a lot of, it's difficult, um, it's difficult to be everywhere at once. And it's great to be able to document what's happening. So, so we know how to better tackle it. I mean, that, that's, that's where we're at, right? Yeah, definitely. And I, mean, I try to use my my unique skill set. You know, I've, I'm kind of coming at it from a different angle. I'm a freelance reporter, but also a storm chaser, former wildland firefighter. I have a, a solid understanding of weather. And so that it kind of requires that particular skill set to get anywhere near these fires. And even then, you got to be humble. I, the only reason I was really able to get fairly close to these fires the last few days is that it was, like I said, it was not very windy. If it's really windy, you're pulling back and uh, those fires are just ripping along. Um, so we're just, uh, yeah, we're hoping for the rains to come here. Uh, I mean, in, in weather model land, you know, for what it's worth next week, we do see a shift toward the potential for some wet weather that could really help the fire season in northern Alberta. So fingers crossed that trend continues in the models. Absolutely. Kyle, uh, thanks for all your good work. Thanks for joining me tonight and sharing, uh, sharing your insight with me. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks. The Airline Pilots Association says in a news release that pilots plan to begin lawful job action early Friday morning, which the release says could include grounding all aircraft and effectively shutting down operations. 
Bernard Lewell, who heads the union's WestJet contingent, said last week the workers' issues revolve around job protection, pay and scheduling, with some 340 pilots leaving the carrier over the past year and a half, mostly to other airlines. The union represents some 1,600 flight crew at WestJet and subsidiary Swoop and had warned Friday a walkout could come as early as this week as talks dragged on. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. So here we are heading into a long weekend, and it could be that WestJet pilots are going to be either locked out or walk off the job. Um, you know, WestJet's already offering customers refunds if they choose to cancel their scheduled flights through the weekend. Uh, but still, a lot of people probably already had plans for the weekend and so on. In a statement Tuesday, the Calgary-based airline said, again, it's offering its passengers a one-time fee waiver for cancellation or changes for flights through Sunday, noting a change in destination could result in additional charges. They could be locked out as early as 3 a.m. on Friday. Friday. Uh, Duncan D is an industry expert and former chief operating officer at Air Canada. He's been on this show before. Duncan, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ben. Well, Doug, Doug timing, timing is everything, and it feels like the timing couldn't be worse uh, for, for this one if you're a passenger. But, but what's going on here? Look, I think that the WestJet and its pilots union have been in negotiations uh, since September, and uh, I was actually surprised that uh, they waited until now. They've had, as uh, you mentioned, uh, since uh, late last week, uh, last weekend, to give 72 hours strike notice. Um, and in fact, they waited uh, a little more time because I believed that they were making progress at the bargaining table, but clearly not enough progress. And so they're now staring a deadline in the face. Yeah, uh, and a pretty imminent one at that. I mean, the impact heading just into this weekend alone could be pretty massive. Absolutely. I mean, WestJet on an average day transports about uh, 60 to 68,000 travelers each and every day. So you can just imagine shutting down the WestJet network would impact that many travelers in communities right across the country. Um, now, having said that, not all WestJet operations will be impacted. They've got a regional subsidiary, WestJet Encore, which will continue to operate through a strike because they're represented by a separate uh, union. And um, the... WestJet flights that are operated uh, by their co-chair partners in the case of Canada-U.S. transborder flights, Delta Airlines, those flights will continue to operate. So we're talking about a, a, a subset of the overall WestJet network, but it's still a very sizable subset. What are the uh, what are the pilots looking for here? Because you hear lots of sort of numbers thrown around, but if you're not in the business, I mean, clearly the union's saying that WestJet pilots are are underpaid compared to the North American average, and they would like to see more stability. They're also worried about attrition. I gather there's been quite an exodus from the airline of late, at least according to the union. What do you think is really going on here? What what is the dispute about it? Who who's who's on the side of the angels here, if anyone? Look, I don't think anybody's on the side of the angels at all. I think that if you take a look at what's been going on in the economy writ large, uh, unionized employees, non-unionized employees are all seeking uh, increases in their wages to keep up with inflation. The big uh, sticking uh, stumbling block in this particular issue, though, is what you just mentioned, you know, the North American average. Now, I'm sure many Canadian workers would love to be able to compare themselves to the North American average. Like a Canadian physician would love to be able to be paid uh, what an American physician would be paid. But that's just not what the economy 
uh, does. Uh, so, you know, a WestJet pilot comparing him or herself to a Delta Airlines pilot where they just received a 34% wage increase is not really an apples-to-apples comparison. What the WestJet management team has done is they have tabled uh, an offer which would put WestJet narrow-body pilots, so they're 737 pilots, at the highest possible wage rates in the Canadian airline industry. So higher than what narrow-body pilots at Air Canada are currently making and higher than any other airline in Canada uh, pays their narrow-body pilots. But, you know, what WestJet, the WestJet Pilots Union is seeking is something more uh, in line with what's happened in the U.S., which is a totally different uh, airline industry with a completely different set of parameters. So, you know, it's a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison that the pilots union is trying to make. Do you think, um, I mean, the long-term impacts of this could be pretty significant too. I mean, we, who knows how, if this won't be all resolved before this, uh, before this actually goes forward. Uh, but the long-term impacts, we've seen it at, at other airlines too, especially with given how tough the last year and year and a bit has been for passengers, right? I think people's, uh, they may understand this, but passengers' uh, patience is pretty, pretty, pretty thin these days as well. Absolutely. Canadian passengers in particular have uh, have seen their patients tested over the last uh, year and a half in terms of air travel in this country. And I think that what uh, we're about to see, if this strike goes ahead, will be uh, something unlike we've seen before. The last time we had a national pilot strike in Canada was in 1998. You know, you wow. and I were teenagers back then, Ben. And yeah, so, so you're, you alone, Duncan, you alone. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, there aren't very rec- many recent memories of what happens in a national pilot strike. But if this happens as, uh, you know, hopefully um, can still be averted. But if it happens on Friday morning at 3 a.m., you know, the plans for that strike will start well before that. So Canadian travels, travelers will see wholesale cancellations from the WestJet schedule starting tomorrow evening, just because that WestJet will want to ensure that their aircraft and their crews are not stuck all over the place, unable to get back to their bases. And so, you know, as early as tomorrow evening, we could start seeing wholesale cancellations in the WestJet schedule, and that's just going to accelerate as they enter into that strike deadline on Friday morning. I, one would think that neither side really wants to see this go go off the edge, right? That they're going to try to figure something out. Do, just from what you've been seeing, do, do you get the sense that they're that they're close that something a breakthrough is possible be in the next twenty four hours, or does it look uh, or, or next forty eight hours rather, or does it look unlikely? Do you think at this point? Look, having been at the negotiating table myself when mm-hmm. uh, the seventy two hour uh, countdown clock starts. This is the most intense period that both negotiating parties are now in the middle of. And what they're going to be up against is the realization that, you know, if if one of them does not uh, table an offer that the other side can agree to, then they are, uh, you know, uh, pushing the proverbial nuclear button. And so in the case of an airline, you know, Ben, most people... Uh, entrust their airline with future travel plans. Not many people book a flight the same day they're traveling or the day before they travel. These are long-held plans. And so 
airline strikes, airline uh, pilot strikes are extremely rare because of the tremendous damage they do, not just to customers and not just to the management of those airlines, but to the pilots and the pilot careers that are at stake. Because if it takes millions and millions of dollars in discounting and in incentives and in marketing to win customers back after a protracted, ugly national strike, then, you know, in many cases, what follows a national strike, if it isn't managed properly, are pilot layoffs. And so many of these pilots are gambling that what they're hoping for is a better deal, and hopefully they won't be able, uh, they won't need a strike to get there. Duncan D, I think uh, a lot of passengers are hoping you're right on this one. Thank you so much, as always, for your insight on this. Thanks, Ben. Let's move to us. This was a really interesting. I mean, this is an article that really caught my eye for obvious reasons over the weekend. Um, the Washington Post reported about the imminent it seems, demise of AM radio in some vehicles. Now, it's been nearly 90 years since cars first featured push-button AM radio. And by the late 1930s, apparently, they were common. The option was common for cars. Well, decades later, that relationship seems to be, many, many decades later, that relationship seems to be under threat. Part of the problem here is electric vehicles. Um, again, over the weekend, the Washington Post reported that BMW, Mazda, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Tesla, amongst others, have already either removed or planned to remove AM radios from at least some electric vehicles. Um, Ford is going even further, apparently, according to the Detroit Free Press, and ditching AM in all new cars, gas or electric. Now, car manufacturers typically cite, according to the article, typically cite electromagnetic interference as the reason for removing the radios from EVs. Electric motors can interfere with AM radio frequencies, making it sound staticky over the airwaves. But is this a good idea? You know, it feels like AM radio is still very important in cars. Lots of people still listen to it. There are thousands and thousands of AM stations right across uh, North America, including here in Canada, including the one you're probably listening to tonight. Um, so for many listeners, AM radio just isn't a thing of the past. Michael Harrison is publisher of Talkers, the leading trade journal covering the talk media in the U.S., and he joins me now. Michael, thank you for your time tonight. And thanks for having me on. This is one of those um, news headlines that, that you, you expect to see, but when you do see it, um, it still comes as a bit of a shock. So what exactly is, is going on? I, I mean, according to the Washington Post, it looks like a number of car companies are looking at getting rid of AM on, uh, on the radio that's included with your car. Yeah, especially with the electric vehicles, because it, it'll cost them a, a bit of money to be able to modify the engine systems so that they don't generate a lot of static. AM radio is sensitive to what's called RF, you know, radio frequency, mm -hmm. and all the cell phones and everything else make a problem for AM. But electric vehicles have proven to be a problem. So they're, they're using that as an excuse not to have to include AM radios in their cars. Not every company, Ford, has been talking about it, several other cars. This has been an issue in the U.S. for a while now. And um, the Washington Post story kind of blew it out into the open. And a lot of people are quite shocked about it. And um, I've been asked, you know, to comment on it, as have a number of people in the uh, in the radio business, it, it is it is shocking to a certain degree, especially those of us who've grown up with AM radio and have an appreciation for both AM and FM, what they mean here as we enter deeper and deeper into the 21st century and all kinds of changes. 
Indeed. And I guess Ford, uh, I mean, this was a quote from a Detroit Free Press article, but uh, that Ford was was looking at uh, getting rid of AM, not just in their EVs, but also in their gas vehicles. So sort of, I mean, I could see why that would make sense for a, for a car company to sort of standardize the radios they put in all their vehicles. Uh, but you thought that was particularly misguided. Oh, I think it's very misguided. I think that, uh, first of all, AM radio is still being used. There are millions and millions of people who listen to AM radio. Talk radio, which is sports talk and news talk, is predominantly on the AM band, and it has tremendous impact on the public, on the national conversation. In other words, it's a vital medium. And then you have foreign language radio. A lot of people who who live in the United States or in Canada, I assume, they don't speak English or French. Uh, and, and, and they come in from Asian countries or European countries, and they have no lifeline to their community or to the folks back home. So these stations are a lifeline for them. And then there's the religious radio, not to mention a lot of older people don't really know how to use the Bluetooth and, and all of the different gizmos that are um, necessary to bypass AM or FM. So it's unfair to them as well. And there, there are many more incidents of uh, reasons cited. Uh, there's the safety reason. There's the national defense system. Um, when, the, when the lights go out, the computers are down. The AM is point to point. So it, it is no question that, that radio like movies and magazines and books and things that are rooted in the 20th century are eventually going to be replaced by new technology. But in the case of AM radio, it's premature. It's, they're, they're trying to save a buck as opposed to being sensitive to millions and millions of people, not to mention all the people that work in those industries and make their living that way. And the amount of money that um, business has tied up in AM properties. I wasn't surprised to see, but 4,000 U.S. AM radio stations still, you know, news, talk, sports, everything you could, th- just all the things you just mentioned. How is it managed? I mean, I remember back in the day as a kid listening to Top 40 on AM, then that moved, right? Music mostly moved off AM uh, when I was, you know, not that fairly long ago at this point, I guess, if you think about it. But AM has found a way to survive over the years uh, in, in a way that, that I think would be surprising to someone if you, you know, went back to 1990 and said, by the way, in 2023, there'll still be thousands of U.S. AM radio stations, hundreds across this country. Aside from the foreign language and the religious and the ethnic formats I cited before, which are not to be taken lightly, Talk radio has revived AM, and a case could be made that talk radio has revived radio. I mean, the biggest names in radio broadcasting in America are on AM radio and their talk show hosts. The biggest names in AM radio are influential on politics. The, the, the irony is that we're talking about a almost obsolete medium technologically and in terms of the culture, yeah, there's no question we're moving beyond radio. But of all radio, the, the radio platform that has the most influence on the national conversation, on national elections, on popular culture, believe it or not, is talk radio, sports talk, news talk, religious talk, financial talk, health talk. This is a, a thriving, vibrant community. So... It's tone deaf on the part of the um, executives and the bean counters in the automobile industry who think, well, you know, we don't really need to have that. We got rid of gate tracks. We got rid of cassettes. We got rid of CDs. Let's get rid of the radio. People can hear what they want to hear online. And it's true. You can hear it online. 
But as I mentioned earlier, that's a little uh, more difficult. And something else that I pointed out in, in an article I wrote today in Talkers is that it's a betrayal because the, the relationship between these two industries, the car industry and the radio industry, goes back 100 years. And radio has basically supported the idea that cars are an intrinsic part of the popular culture. And there's traffic reports and there's weather reports and, and radio and, and the music and, and Little Deuce Coop and Daddy right. Took the T-Bird Away. And I mean, we're talking about a mutually beneficial relationship that has existed between these two industries in terms of um, increasing both sides standing in popular culture. They should be waiting another five or 10 years before they pull the radios out of the cars. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not backward thinking. I'm not a merchant of nostalgia. I know where it's heading, but it's premature. Uh, Michael, how you mentioned it earlier, of course, the legacy of AM radio and the legacy of the radio period and the car seem incredibly intertwined over time. Uh, but how important is the car still to AM radio? Very important, have to admit, um, and that's why there's such a big deal being made about it. So much of radio listening takes place in the automobile, and and radio is designed for the automobile. Uh, there's no video aspect of it. It's very difficult to uh, drive and watch a, a, a screen. Already as it is, the passengers in the modern era are <laughs> they're into their own screens, not everybody is listening to the same speaker anymore in a car. The kid, everybody has their own little you know, smartphone and they're watching their own movies and all that. But at least leave it for the driver to be able to listen and not be distracted. They're very important. And, you know, um, there is a tremendous political clout to talk radio, to news radio. It isn't like the automobile industry doesn't have its own warts and controversies, True enough. In, including electric vehicles, which um, research is indicating uh, is not so green as they'll have you think. I would think that um, the automobile industry would rather have radio on its side, you know, ticking off all of these uh, radio broadcasters across the country to suddenly looking at the automobile industry as somebody that betrayed them and somebody that's not a friend anymore. So I think it's really stupid at this point for them to do this. And I hope that they reconsider and back off. I don't think they expected this type of backlash. Yeah, tell me about the backlash, because the article you were you were interviewed for the Washington Post article, I know it's been heavily quoted. You've been heavily quoted. It's been uh, it's been talked about a lot. What what has been the initial reaction and what does and what does pushback look like? Outrage, total outrage on the part of um, people in the radio business and their allies. The NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, um, is um, up in arms about it. Former Vice President Pence has put out a public service announcement telling people to uh, write their legislators and complain about this. Uh, major radio station and radio group owners are making speeches about this and recruiting followers within the industry to use whatever clout they have as big businesses, as big communications organizations, and as big platforms and megaphones to show the, um, the captains of industry in the car business that they're going down the wrong road, no pun intended. Indeed. This was very much an American-based story when it came out. I'm, I'm assuming I mean, anything that happens to American vehicles tends to happen to Canadian vehicles. Uh, I, I suppose on this side, we, we should be looking into weighing, weighing this decision on uh, the Canadian side of the border as well. 
There's no question about it. I mean, the similarities between uh, the media in Canada and the U.S. far outweigh the differences. There are differences. Some of it has to be with regulatory rules and cultural differences. But technologically and in terms of broad strokes uh, culture, uh, radio uh, in Canada and radio in the U.S. is far more similar than, uh, than, di- than different. I think that people listening to your program right now will be outraged if this is the first time they're hearing about this. Indeed. And you mentioned there was um, some other issues at hand here. One of them is emergencies, right? We know that uh, that in the event of major disasters, that a battery-powered radio can be a lifeline, right? It'd be Absolutely. To, yeah. Absolutely. Also, in many rural parts of the U.S., and I'm certain it's the same in Canada, mm-hmm. they don't have great internet service. No. So, so the idea that, well, you can always stream your favorite station, uh, it, it's not necessarily the case. And that's a that's a major point. The the remedy of using you know Bluetooth and listening to your station through the the dashboard that already has a a, a digital component to it. Um, frankly, that's the way I listen to AM radio as I listen to it on my smartphone through right. the Bluetooth into the dashboard. But some people don't have that ability, and 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 that makes it even worse because radio is supposed to be a lifeline. It's supposed to be something that aids in communication, and um, this is not being considered. So that's that's another major reason why this is a boneheaded idea. Any predictions? I, I know no one has a crystal ball and predictions are awful, but but any predictions as to what's going to happen here? Um, all I could do is 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 predict like a weather person that, that the, the facts as they are right now. I don't have a crystal ball, but based on the way it's going, I think that they will reconsider. Michael, thank you so much for your time and your perspective on this. Thank you, Ben. Lady Wilson is a name you may know, you may not. Uh, you may have seen her on Yellowstone. She has a role in season five. But if, uh, just a few nights ago, back late last week, she absolutely cleaned up at the Academy of Country Music Awards. Here's what she had to say. I wrote 300 songs during the plant pandemic. And um, a lot of folks have shared with me that this album has changed their life. But the truth is, writing these songs for this album saved mine. So, Bell Bottom Country is country with a flair. It's a state of mind, and I'm always there. Yeah, that was a jubilant Lady Wilson last Friday. Uh, The Louisiana-born singer, songwriter, and actress took home four awards that night, including Female Artist of the Year and Album of the Year for that album, Bell Bottom Country, she calls it. That's what the album is called. Another feather in the cap for uh, for Wilson. She's gone from one success to the next of late, including a role as singer Abby in season five of that smash hit TV series, Yellowstone. The show also helped catapult her further into the stratosphere by featuring several of her songs in earlier seasons and again, of course, in this latest one. But success, like so many artists, but not all, success really did not come quickly or easily for Wilson. She spent 11 years in Nashville working hard, looking for that big break. That really came in 2021 uh, with Saying What I'm Thinking, the album was called, and that track that you just heard off the tap uh, called What a Man Ought to Know. Her music is described as being rooted in country, but also incorporates elements of pop, southern rock, contemporary country, classic country. Her dad was a big Glenn Campbell fan. She was a Hannah Montana impersonator when she was young. Um, And she's had those signature bell bottoms. That was a childhood love growing up in tiny Baskin, Louisiana, which is kind of between Shreveport and Jackson, Mississippi, way up there in the north, uh, northeast corner of the of the state. Uh, one of her tracks, she's had huge inspirations, like so many. One of her tracks is called 
WWD, which stands for What Would Dolly Do? It's an ode to Dolly Parton. Well, she's heading out our way. She'll be opening for Luke Combs for stadium shows in Vancouver and Edmonton. She's playing smaller venues at the same time in Winnipeg, Calgary as well. Uh, she is one of the hottest acts in all of music, certainly country music. And Lainey Wilson joins me now. Wow, what a, what a run it's been for you. It has been wild. That's the best way for me to explain it. Wild. <laughs> well, it's, it's not like you didn't earn it. I mean, you've been at this for a long time. But I wanted to start about talking about the tour because you're, you're going to be in Canada, which is, of course, for Canadians, uh, exciting. Um, is it You're playing huge venues and smaller venues. That must be interesting for an artist to do both, like what, do it sort of night after night as well. It does keep it very interesting. You know, one night I'll be playing a, a room of 3,000 capacity, and the next night I'll be playing with Luke Holmes um, with 60,000 people. So, you know, I feel like I'm right now I'm kind of getting the best of both worlds. I get to have my headlining show where I get to, you know, for an hour and a half, I get to get up there and really get to know the audience and have the audience get to know me back. And when I'm up there with Luke Holmes playing my 30-minute set, I am ripping and raring and trying to get the crowd pumped up for some Luke Combs. So I get to do both. Yeah, I was seeing an interview with Luke Combs where he said that he always liked to, to prep other people. Like there's a, it's, it's a big responsibility when you're, uh, when you're one of the acts coming on before because you're really there to, uh, to build up the main person, but also to remind people about how great you are as well. That's right. And, and I will tell you, Luke Combs is a great one to go on the road with. He's just – he's exactly who he – it was when I met him in 2014, he'd come over to my camper trailer where I live and That's right. write music together. And it's just a full circle moment for me to, to be out there for him and, and with him. And so it's, it's kind of second nature for me to, to want to get people pumped up to see him. He's just like a brother. Yeah, you guys have similar story. I mean, you really both, I mean, you particularly, but you both really paid your dues in Nashville. I mean, you both did it. Did it I wouldn't say it was the hard way, but you did it. Yeah. You know, it, nothing came easy. That's right. That's right. And I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, everybody's got their their own stories and their own journeys, but it has taken me a very long time. I've been in Nashville now for 12 years trying to do this thing. And for me, it's never been any other option. It's no plan B because I feel, felt like if I had a plan B, then plan A was not going to work. So I knew that I loved country music and I knew that that was never going to change. And dang it, it feels good to feel like country music is finally starting to love me back. You tell this great story about being on a road trip with your parents and sort of seeing the AT&T building, the Bat building, right? At one yeah. point and thinking, this one day, how did you know? It, I'll tell you, it was a really strange feeling. I mean, even at nine years old, I just had a weird feeling, a weird sense of peace about knowing that I was supposed to be here. I was supposed to tell stories. I do believe my love for storytelling came from being from a town of 200 people in Northeast right. Louisiana. And I mean, we'd sit around a kitchen table and tell the same old stories we've been telling for years or hear the same old stories you've been hearing for years. But it seems like every time you heard them, um, maybe you heard them from a different angle or they got better over time. And um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to make people feel something. And I feel so lucky to and blessed to just be a part of the country music industry. That's all I've ever wanted. Yeah, and and you'd written your first song by age nine, had you not? Yeah, it was really close to when I took my first trip to Nashville. I believe in the same year, nine years old, I came to Nashville for the first time. I wrote my very first song for the first time, and I got my very first pair of bell bottoms. So a lot <laughs> happened when I was nine years old. 
Here we are. The bell-bottom thing is great because I guess I, I mean it, it has become to it's come to symbolize you. How did you how did you land on the bell-bottoms? Because I mean I remember back to those days they would sort of I remember when they were popular in the seventies because my mom had a pair and then they kind of mm-hmm. disappeared and they would sort of come back every now and then they would wind their way through culture and then they would disappear again. How did you land on them? Well, you know, I've always been a sucker for things that are throwback. I mean, if you walk into my house, you'll see my daddy's old rodeo chaps or you'll see my mama's china cabinet. And I feel like things that are throwback come with a good story. I've always loved the look of bell bottoms. And like I said, when I got my very first pair at nine years old, it was like my mama said, you got to take those off. We got to wash them at some point. I mean, it was I was just completely obsessed with them. I had been in Nashville for four or five years at that time. And I was trying to figure out what could I do that's different, that's uh, still true to me and and real to me and something that I love? And I thought about those blue leopard print bell bottoms. I mean, truly, that's what I I felt comfortable in. That's what I felt sassy. And that's what I felt like I could take over the world in. So I decided, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with it. And so now I've been wearing bell bottoms every single day for about seven years. It's not easy being a female singer songwriter in this industry and you have to do something that kind of makes you stand out a little different because it doesn't matter if your music is is decent or your songwriting is decent um it's like you got to do a little something extra and that's what i have i have done what's what's remarkable about it it's, and it's your music too and it's your whole story is that authenticity is the hardest thing to come by right it's hard to be authentic and it's hard to be authentic and be successful because you have to doubt it you know, that's all you got right you just got you right. And, and and you got to rely on, you have to sort of think this is going to work eventually, but it's tough. It's tough. Your story coming, coming in your, in your, in your little camper to Nashville and then, and then toughing it out for 11 years. And then here we are. I know it's a journey. And the crazy part is we're really just getting started. I feel like when people ask me like, how are you feeling? I, I honestly feel like I have been preparing for the race my entire life. I feel like I just entered it and just now I'm about to run it. So, you know, let's not count the 12 years I've been in Nashville doing this. I've been working at this since I was nine years old. I mean, I impersonated Hannah Montana in high school. I have literally, I I did so many things to, to get me to this point. And I have said yes to so many things. And um, like I said earlier, you know, everybody's journey looks different, but I truly do believe that time was supposed to be a part of my story, maybe for the little boys and girls, for them to know that things don't happen overnight. You got to plant those seeds. You got to water them if you want them to grow. Lady, did you get the feeling that that maybe you needed more life to tell better stories? Like maybe maybe the journey was, was part of it? Absolutely. I was actually just telling somebody that the other day. I said, when I rolled into town in 2011 in my camper trailer, I mean, I thought I was ready. I thought I was ready to sell out some shows. But the truth is, I had not lived enough life at that moment to tell the kind of stories that I was supposed to tell. And I'm okay with it. I'm okay. I, I trust the Lord. I trust his process. And I'm glad that it's taken me this long. I don't know if I would have felt like I deserved it. But right now, I truly do. Lainey Wilson is with us uh, this half hour. A great pleasure. Uh, it's been a hugely successful year for Lainey. Uh, have you been? Have you spent much time here? I know you were kind of in the Rockies when you were shooting Yellowstone, so you're you're kind of nearby. But have you spent much time in Canada? I have not, and I'm looking forward to it. You know, I've I've been wanting to come up that way for a long time. My good old friend Megan Patrick. I mean, she sings everybody's praises over there, and she just she has been telling me for years. She's like, I'm telling you, when you go up there, there's nothing like it. So. I have I've been up there a little bit, but not near enough. So looking forward to it. Tell me about Yellowstone because it's a great story. I remember your songs in the show. 
So that was kind of the introduction. I, I think that was an introduction to a great audience too. And all of a sudden in, in season five, there you were. And uh, how did that happen? So Yellowstone has been really great to me for years now. So they put a few of my songs in season two and season three, which really did introduce me to a lot of folks. I mean, the soundtrack to that show is very beneficial to be a part of. I truly do think that they have helped kind of bring that Western way of life back and and make it cool again. And I'm so glad to be a part of that wave. But Taylor Sheridan, the writer and producer of the show, I became buddies with him. You know, he was willing to help me any way that he possibly could. And he called me in February of 22 and he said, I've got this idea. He said, what about you being a part of the show, you playing a musician, you can wear your bell bottoms, you can sing your own songs, but go by a musician named Abby. I mean, I had never acted a day in my life at that point. And without even thinking, I said, count me in. I mean, this was an opportunity for me to share my music with the world and you dang right, I was going to be a part of it. So I dove in head first and did things that were outside of my comfort zone. But I feel like at this point, that's the only way that you grow. I heard you say that you actually stopped memorizing your lines. You're just trying to do a little bit of ad lib. That's 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 walking on a tightrope without a net, isn't it? Oh, for sure. You know, I I was familiar with the lines. It was kind of like learning a song that I didn't write, but I wanted to make sure that I didn't learn them too much to where it did look like I had memorized it. I wanted it to look conversational and kind of come across the way that that I normally would. You know, I, I definitely I had somebody kind of giving me some pointers and that was that was one of her pointers. She said, you know, of course, I want you to be familiar with with all of it, but don't overlearn it because that's when you can really mess up. So so, well, here goes nothing. Have you enjoyed it? Is, is I mean, that part of it, just taking a flyer and, and going to do it. I mean, I'm sure you knew you could do it, but uh, it must have been tense at the beginning to think, I wonder what this is going to look like uh, when it's when it's said and done. Oh, for sure. I mean. There were a million cameras around trying to get certain angles. And like I said, this was my first rodeo. And I will say it, it was during a time of my life that was really hard. My daddy um, was in ICU during That's that right, time fighting sick, for his yeah. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was strange because I'd go do one of my scenes and I'd go over to the corner and cry a little bit. And I'd come back and I'd, I'd feel more. But it did show me what I was made of, you know, that grit that my parents had really instilled in me and I had to pull it out during that time and so if I did it during that time I'm excited to see what it's going to look like next time I get to do it without anything traumatic going on yeah how is your dad because I know you I heard you talking about how your dad used to play Glenn Campbell songs on a, on a flatbed truck back in your hometown that was sort of the first performances you would have watched and how, how influential right. he's been for you for sure he's he's actually doing really good he's good. been farming the last few weeks so as long as he can climb up on a you know, on a tractor and um, do the things that he loves, I'm not too worried about him. So he's doing great. He's still hard headed and he's still a bull in a china shop. So he's doing okay. What do they think of all that's happened to you in the past little while? I'm, I'm sure they never had any doubt, but you know, uh, you know, it must be it must be a real whirlwind for the whole family. It does feel that way. You know, they were my my first believers before anybody was. You know, my mama would sit in the bathroom with me for hours where the acoustics were the best. And she'd listen to the new music I've been writing, 9, 10, 11 years old, and try to help me, critiquing me a little bit. Not that she knew how to write a song, but she was a teacher. She really kind of helped me learn along the way. So it's been a whirlwind for them, too. But just like you said, they never had any doubt. My daddy, and now in the end, he'll, I'll say, what do you think about all this? And he'll just go, ain't that something? 
So it's, uh, that's pretty much all he's got to say. He's a man of few words. Uh, Well, ain't that something that's a pretty good way to sum it up. Uh, Lady, tell me a bit about WWDD. What does that, or what does that mean? Because I I gather that's been a big part of your mantra as well. It for sure has. WWD. Right. What would Dolly do? (laughs) She, uh, that's the question that I ask myself all the time. Even when it came to the Yellowstone opportunity, I did. I, I thought about, Dolly Parton. I thought about people like Reba, the kind of ladies who don't take no for an answer, the kind of ones who aren't scared to step outside of their comfort zone and and chase down other things. You know, I mean, of course, I didn't grow up dreaming about being an actress, but my songwriting has led me to this opportunity. And I feel like you're supposed to take opportunity. So I do go back to what would Dolly do all the time? Truly. I mean, she seems like she's got a heart of gold. She seems like she knows who she is and she has remained true to herself throughout all the success that she has. And that's really inspiring to me. I feel like I could learn a whole lot from her. Just, I mean, I already have and she's the best. Yeah. I I remember back the first time I ever saw Dolly Parton was in nine to five, right? It must've been eight, eight or nine. It came out and I didn't know much about country music and there was Dolly Parton in nine to five. So when you, when you take a role in those shows, you really do broaden your audience to people who may not know you. And uh, I mean, even no Dolly was, was famous by then. I just was young, but uh, it's a, it's a big one. You got to meet her, right? You finally got to, I did. I got to meet her on stage at the ACMs. That was the, um, the very first time I'm like, I couldn't think of a better way to meet somebody. And especially her. Yeah, I, I guess the, this is. I know you can't talk about this, but is are we going to see what do we know about the second half of Yellowstone season five? Because there's so much speculation about it. You seem confident. Well, I'll tell you, I have learned that the TV business is even crazier than the music ah. business. So I don't know what's going on, and I'm not even lying to you about it. <laughs> yeah, but you'll be there. You'll be there if you need to I'm be there. I'm hoping. I'm hoping uh, Taylor Sheridan just needs to give me the call, and and we'll see what happens. I do laugh and say that they didn't take me to the train station just yet so i could be back in so you're gonna be in Winnipeg, vancouver on may 27th winnipeg on the 30th saskatoon on the 31st back in edmonton on june 3rd for the big stage and then back in calgary after that uh, fans will be excited to see you i'm sure it's been you're coming here you know you're you're just you're still cresting in your career and now you're canada bound it's gonna be great i cannot wait i'm looking forward to it really well laney thank you so much for your time and congratulations once again thank you so much Generational divides. We talk about it a lot. It feels like we have a lot, a lot of stereotypes for each other these days. I mean, I remember back at a time where we really didn't even talk about what generation you were part of. I mean, certainly my parents were baby boomers and that was a big deal. And, you know, theirs was really named after something that, you know, a specific demographic event that was well known to all, you know, the post-war baby boom back in the 40s into the 50s and just how much that massive generation had an impact on society in general as they went through the uh through the 60s and so forth and and just how much of an imprint they left on society in general with the kinds of things uh with the sorts of things that they believed in right they really did have uh changes they didn't really did see the world differently from their parents i certainly remember sort of the conflicts between my parents and their parents who were definitely from a different generation i mean they grew up during the depression they grew up um you know they grew up they were children during the First World War. They grew up during the Depression. They remember that. Obviously, they were uh, adults or young adults during the Second World War and then went on to have kids. And they were part of, uh, you know, it was a very different, very different atmosphere than what, my, what I grew up in with my parents and so on. But it, it feels like um, those generational divides 
have been kind of exacerbated in a way that we haven't seen since the 60s. And uh, my next, as my next guest puts it, at a time when generational conflict from work attitudes to cancel culture to, quote, OK, boomer, um, separating the myths from the reality of generations is more important than ever. Uh, those are the words of American psychologist Jean Twangy. She's been looking into generations and the divides for decades, including recent books on Gen Z and on millennials. Uh, now she's cast a wider lens to examine the real differences between all of us, that includes Gen Z. If you don't know, I mean, just so I can clarify this for you, Gen Z is 1995 to 2012. Millennials, 1980 to 1994. Gen X, that's that's me, 1965 to 1979. Boomers, my parents, 1946 to 1964. Tens of millions of people in the U.S. and right around the world. Uh, Twangy turns her eye um, and her understanding on everything from family dynamics to work culture, mental health policies to politics and public discourse. And she looks at it through the prism of the generations, what divides us, what unites us, and the myths that we all seem to love to perpetuate. Uh, she is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. Her latest book is called Generations. The real differences between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and the silent generation and what they mean for America's future or North America's future. And Gene Twangy joins me now. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been doing this. I mean, you've been looking into this now for, for many, many years, uh, three decades almost since you were doing this work in grad school. Why do you find that generations are such an interesting way to look at society, especially now when it feels like the differences are so accentuated? Yeah, and I think they are. I mean, I think the generation gap is just as big or even larger now than it was, say, for the baby boomers in the late 60s when their parents didn't understand them. And that's due to many factors, you know, one of which is technology. And we just, you know, we don't communicate in the same way anymore that boomers want to see you face to face. Uh, Gen X wants to send you an email. Uh, millennials want to text you. And Gen Z wants to send you their resume as a TikTok video. You're right. Because I remember distinctly, I mean, we're both Gen X. I remember my boomer parents growing up and how much, you know, sort of their counterculture moves in Woodstock and the 60s and all that stuff was so seminal in our understanding of generation gap. You know, the difference between your grandparents who grew up during the Depression and your parents who grew up in the 50s and the 60s was really pronounced. And yet you, and you, you say that technology has made it even more so now. I think it has. And you're right. The gap between boomers and their parents was around values, particularly around individualism, putting more focus on the self and less on others. And we still have individualism as a core value, and it's still changing and still explains a lot of the generational differences. But we've also just got this accelerating pace, just this breakneck pace of social change based around technology. So you know, the latest example of this is just the rise of the smartphone and the rise of social media and how that's just atomized the media landscape and created those generation gaps based on communication. And also, I mean, has had a really big impact on Gen Z, who as teens and young adults is socializing in a completely different way. You know, they don't see their friends in person as much as previous generations did because they're instead communicating with them online. 
it also exacerbates and and you know being of of an older generation now sort of feeling like my dad did back in the 80s or 90s for that matter is just how much i think each generation doesn't think the other generations understand them anymore and that's and that that's been more pronounced i think than perhaps when we were young i mean my parents were pretty cool right the boomers were a pretty cool bunch they liked cool stuff uh, but nowadays i get the sense that um, that generations just don't feel like they really get each other much I think that might be true. And I think there's there's you know, a couple reasons for that. It's it is just that that cultural change has really accelerated. Say Gen Z is talking to each other and communicating with each other on TikTok. And how many Gen Xers do you know who have a TikTok account? It's pretty rare, right? A few, but they don't know how to use it. They don't know how to watch it. <laughs> they don't know how to watch it. <laughs> right. Which is most of it. Um, yeah. But the just those those realms of communication, it just feels like the generations, you know, are all talking to each other. They're talking to people their own age. And then not having those more honest conversations with people of, of other generations. And I, it really fueled my goal in this book, which is mm-hmm. to help the generations understand each other better because there's so many stereotypes, so many myths. You know, the age of the internet is great because you have access to lots of information, but it's also not great because you have access to so much information because who knows if that information is true. And that's absolutely true of uh, generational differences. There's a lot of rumors and myths out there, which I found out were really not true. One of the ones that I found really fascinating because it is such an ingrained one is that, you know, the boomer, because I grew up with boomer parents and I remember distinctly they didn't have it easy. But there's this conception that boomers did really well. I mean, the housing markets helped them obviously immensely, but that somehow they had it easy. They bought, you know, houses when houses were cheap. Now their real estate is worth a fortune and they've kind of, you know, they're sitting up there in rarefied air and everyone below them is struggling. And and you point out that, that that's not the case. It's just not true. It, it's really not the case. I mean, in so many different levels. So one is median incomes for 25 to 44 year olds. So those are mostly millennials right now. They're at all time highs. And yes, that is adjusted for inflation. And that includes housing and includes healthcare. It includes all of the, the costs of goods. Millennial wealth has now neck and neck with Gen Xers at the same age and is on track to catch up with boomers. And that takes into account student loans, which, of course, yes, it is true. Millennials had to take out a lot more in student loans than the boomers. But I think there's just so much that gets forgotten that a lot of boomers, particularly those without a college education, ended up stuck when the economy shifted away from manufacturing and towards service jobs and white collar jobs in the 1980s. So they have not done particularly well. So this idea of you know boomers is all rich and powerful isn't true. And then with housing prices, the thing that people forget is that in the 1980s, mortgage interest rates were at 13 or 14%. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, so even though housing prices, yes, have outpaced inflation, so you do have to put more down, say for a down payment, that is absolutely different. That's more challenging. That payment, at least up until maybe a year ago, the actual mortgage payment was pretty much the same. Gene, one thing I found really interesting, first of all, the, the idea of the book was to create understanding and sort of dispel, dispel some of the myths that exist between generations now in an effort to try to d- develop a bit more harmony. But also it allows us to peek a little bit into the future and where you see some of the, some, you know, some of the friction points. Uh, what might the future look like as we you know, continue on with our own set of sort of ideals and prejudices and beliefs about the other groups around us and so forth? Yeah, so the whole last chapter uh, of the book is to try to take a look into the future. And I'm very empirically based, so you have to make some guesses when you do this, but 
I tried as much as I could to rely on a lot of the big surveys that I work with have you know, pretty young respondents. So especially one that looks at 18-year-olds, it's very useful. So we can see, for example, fewer of them say that they want to have children and fewer of them say that they want to be married. So I think that is going to mean the birth rate in Western countries is going to continue to decline. And it's already been, I mean, we've been reading about this for aid and not just here, but Japan, Korea, China, here, I mean, everywhere, it's been it's been down a lot. And, and also, I mean, you've talked about this, this sort of delayed adulthood, right? This idea of delayed adulthood. And I guess we're seeing that reflected as well. How about the workplace? Because you, you do emphasize the workplace a lot, because that is that one place where all these groups collide, right? It is. And I think that's one reason why generations is such a hot topic right now is because of these generational divides and they often do come to a head in the workplace. And I've, I've heard a lot about this, you know, for years, but maybe especially in the last year or so of young people saying, I just don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get why my bosses want X or Y. And the bosses are like, I don't get the, I don't get the young employees. I don't know what's going on. So there are, I think, you know, some misunderstandings and, and some challenges here. So there's some good news. Gen Z, compared to the generations before them, is more likely to say that they want a job that's helpful to others and is worthwhile to society. Contrary to popular belief, they're actually a little less likely to say they want a job that's interesting or where they can make friends. That may um, you know, take the pressure off of um, some workplaces and trying to create those things. There's a little bad news, and I don't know if it's a blip. A lot of the questions around work ethics, so expecting work to be a central part of your life or being willing to work overtime, those had been improving among 18-year-olds had been going up, uh, improving at least from a manager's point of view, until 2021 when right. they really, really fell. So that's one year where we had the big decline and we have to see if that will continue. But it did sort of predict the next year, 2022, when you started to hear about quiet quitting. Yeah, th- this whole sort of pandemic fueled shift in in the importance of work as as being something central in your and and, and it happened across the generations so many people kind of reassessing their their relationship with their jobs and so on empathy comes up a lot in 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 how you describe this we need to be more empathetic with each other as generations because you often get asked who's to blame right because every generation wants to blame target a certain generation. We like to blame the boomers for being so sort of self-involved. And, you know, I, we think we think everyone who's sort of addicted to social media are all narcissists. And all of it is patently untrue for in the great in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I, I really dislike the very, very common language around generations. Whose fault is it? Who yeah. should we blame? First of all, that assumes that all change is bad. Of course, it's not. There have been many, many positive changes as well. It's also inaccurate. A lot of these changes have affected all of the generations. And it's not very helpful either. You know, especially if you think about these changes as affecting everyone, and they have, you know, the changes in technology and individualism in the slow life strategy of just taking longer to grow up and longer to grow old. These have had an impact on everybody. We're all in this together. So pointing fingers isn't really going to get us very far. Any parting advice? I mean, people of all different generations will be listening to this, no doubt. I mean, probably from from the older from older generations. But what do you tell people now who look out at at these sort of these accelerations and wonder and just and feel quite isolated within their own group? Right. I mean, I think that's what it boils down to. You kind of need to reach out and ask some questions. Be curious. I think. Absolutely, and you know, there's a fairly long tradition of older generations trying to figure out younger ones. 
And I hope that continues because I think that often does come from that place of wanting to understand someone else's experience. But I would also lay out a request to younger generations that not everything older generations think is wrong or outdated. There is also wisdom. And yes, sometimes sometimes you're right, but not always. And also just, just realize when you're looking at your boss or your parent or whoever it is, that they had a different experience growing up than you did. They have a different perspective. That doesn't make that perspective wrong. It's just different and it could help you. Yeah. I remember how much I learned. I mean, I graduated, I think we probably graduated about the same time in the early 90s. The economy wasn't in great shape. And of course, my grandmother had grown up during the Depression. So she understood better than my parents did what it was like to live through tough economic times. Gene Twangy, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you. Early 2000s count as ancient history. (laughs) Mashable, this gets me extra valley girl. (laughs) Mashable reports that young people are falling back in love with the old relic called the flip phone. Oh, vinyl sales are up. Next thing you know, we're going to be like hawking eight tracks. (laughs) The latest in something called vintage tech nostalgia, where young people dig up your old favorites and they act like they're brand new. So they're buying old Motorola razors, old Samsung flip phones, oh, and hooking them up and using them. There's Drew Barrymore on her show talking about this phenomenon. With The beautiful thing about anybody who wants to borrow one of my old phones, I have about 400 chargers they could have. Uh, I don't know where the phones are, but the chargers all still exist. Tons of them that I still have left over from the old days. I just can't bear to throw them away unless that phone needs charging one day if I could ever find the phone. If you look around the world right now, it's clear that those who want to have smartphones, most people want smartphones, they get smartphones. That's what your phone company will, you know, when you go get a contract with a cell phone company, that's what they'll give you. They're handy, right? They're great. You can read on them, you can watch TV on them, you can do all kinds of stuff on them. Um, And, you know, the old adage is that technology only moves in one direction forward. Well, some, as Drew Barrymore was pointing out, are bucking that trend, returning to what could be called a simpler time and a simpler phone. Uh, Companies like HMD Global, who now make Nokia phones, continue to sell millions of mobile devices in the U.S., similar to those ones you would have seen back at the turn of the century, right? Those flip phones or other similar, just like your regular cell phone. Um, They have a few modern features on them, but they aren't cutting edge in the least. Feature flip phone sales were up in 2022 in the U.S., according to uh, 4HMD Global. They sell tens of thousands of them each month. Now, you know, this is not, you're not going to see a ton of them. It's pretty flat overall, but far more than you might expect. You sort of expect them to go, you know, if all of a sudden when we when we got sort of all that far more fancy uh, modern home phones, if, if those of you who can remember <laughs> Back Remember those days when we used to have, you know, when you, when you got like the, the push button phones and weren't they great? You could get rid of the dial phones. It, weren't, it wasn't like tons of us were out going to find dial phones again, right? It's somewhat the same. Not really. Uh, but there is that growing movement among Gen Z to do away with smartphones and go back to less smartphones. Why? Why? Why, you ask yourself? Well, there could be a couple of reasons. Certainly it's fashionable, right? nostalgia cells. So, you know, having a, and they're not the same, they kind of fancy them up and so on. So having a fancy flip phone and being a little, you know, counterculture and trendy part of it. But there are also some more deep-seated reasons like digital detox, trying to 
unplug from the constant of your phone. And of course, Gen Z are the, are the digital natives. They grew up with these things. So they understand how powerful they can be and how hard it is to be to, to detach yourself from them. And of course, there's the whole notion of privacy as well. So there's others, some other stuff going on. It's not just trendy. There's some other stuff going on in there as well. To tell us all about it is Omar Faris. He's a lecturer in the, at the Ted Rogers School of Retail Management at Toronto Metropolitan University. Omar, thank you. Ben, thank you for having me. This is, I mean, we were talking about our first phones, right? I remember my first cell phone. It was like a big clunky Nokia thing back sometime in the mid 90s. I wasn't one of the early adopters. They were just too expensive when I was young. I had no reason to have one. But you too, you had a flip phone, right? Oh, yeah. I had a flip. I mean, listen, I was so excited about having my flip phone. Um, it was, uh, I think, the coolest thing I had. And, you know, we moved from there, but the, at the time, that was very cool to have. Yes. Yeah. Now, one always thinks of technology as sort of being linear, right? You always get the best, that whatever's the best thing you get it, right? So, you know, we moved away from old TVs to new TVs, from old laptops to new laptops, from what we call dumb phones now to smartphones. Uh, but you found that there's actually a bit of a reverse in that trend, not a huge one, but still something significant. Yeah. And I think it's worth discussing. So it's a very counterintuitive trend, and especially from people who are leading more, so this trend, are Gen Z, which are the younger generation. So I think I think there's something interesting there in terms of, well, wait a second, why are people in general going back to, I guess, dumb phones? And more specifically, why on earth would Gen Z, who are tech native and digital natives, would say, you know what, let's think of ways to revert back so there is there is definitely an interesting trend there, and I think it's worth discussing further. Yeah, I, I specifically for a group that would have never really owned a flip phone in the past. I mean, there's no reason for anyone born after 1990 to have ever, maybe they had a flip phone as their first phone when they were super young. But I, I don't imagine they've had one in adulthood, and here they are adopting them again. So you looked at some of the reasons why. I think the first one that's the most obvious is sort of nostalgia and trendiness and a return of the 90s. You know, the same reason why when I was young, there was sort of a revival of the 70s and then the revival of the yeah. 80s. And now we're having a revival of these things that were popular around the Y2K moment? Nostalgia is an interesting one. And I, I, it's, it's a very complex, uh, very complex emotion because in essence, you know, Gen Zers, you know, they didn't really go through the transition, I think, with a lot of generations that underwent, you know, they didn't have their, I guess, first flip phones or et cetera. However, it's, it's an idealized look at the past where, you know, in the past is seen as kind of a more positive. So that's a big one. And that's a big reason why something like this is moving. You know, I, I shared even an ad, an advertisement from Nokia. And yes, they're still around. It was interesting. It was uh, most of the comments in the YouTube was like, oh, this brings back good old memories and golden age, etc. Right? right. So that's a big one. But I think one of the biggest reasons for Gen Z's move is uh, the digital detox or the idea of digital detox. Right. right? Sort, of, sort of forcing them off the being being attached to their phones as entertainment devices and so on, sort of using it simply as a communications device. Exactly. And you know what? Uh, when we think of the idea of digital detox, and, and I want to first, I guess, define it. So we build them, um, I guess, same logic. Um, it's a period of time, a select period of time where one would step away or step down a little bit from heavy use of technology to kind of connect with or build social connections, go out there, see the world, etc. So when, you know, the younger generations, what they found is, and especially with the TikTok culture of scroll, 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 two minutes, one minute, 
a few seconds and then scroll, over time, what tends to happen is immense amounts of pressure, right? There is so many movements. There's so much noise. There is enhanced level of connectivity, which can have many positives, but to a certain level, the the level of nonstop connectivity can and does take an active toll on one's mental health and physical health, right? There is what's known now as the tech neck or, um, you know, the, the look down on your phone. Right. So your neck hurt all the time and loss of sleep time. You know, when I, I'm guilty of that too. Before you sleep, you kind of look at your phone, you know, the blue yeah. light. and but, but you skim through and you say, oh, it's just a few minutes. But these few minutes have immense impact on the sleeping patterns. So many negatives. And I think that's why the push is there to kind of have that digital detox. Let's clean up a little bit and come back uh, a little bit later. And it's, I think it's, it's good. It is. I mean, what's odd about it, though, is that you would, it would be connected to the device as opposed to your own habits, right? Whereas instead of trying to break free of, of the addiction to your smartphone, you simply get yourself a phone that can't do any of that stuff, uh, which which is interesting in of itself. You'd sort of think, I guess that's a testament to the to the power of the smartphone as well, that you actually need to, to get rid of it and get something a lot less uh, sophisticated to try and break that habit. Absolutely. And, you know, let me give you an example, you know, in, um, in many random cases, and I see this in social groups all the time, and I always take notes. And sometimes I do it. Randomly, you sit with a group of people and you put your hand in your pocket, you get your phone out, right? You don't necessarily look at anything. It's just the habitual, actual physical habitual movement of getting your phone, turning it on, and then putting it back in your pocket again, right? So a big part of this is habits that has been built over a long period of time, especially if you're a digital native, as in born with technology, then you'll go and say, well, you know, this is a physical habit that needs some sort of breaking. When you do this with um, with a smartphone, you might find some notifications, etc. When you do this with a flip phone, chances are limited that you would see more and more notifications. And as in, you would have less need for that habitual move, right? As in put, putting your hand in your pocket, checking your phone. Omar, I mean, you come face to face with this every day when you teach, right? So, so tell me, so what, what is the reaction from those who are apparently part of this group looking to, looking to, uh, to sort of do away with their smartphones and take a step back in time? You know what? And, and I see this, uh, like I said, in classrooms uh, all the time, it is, it's becoming harder and harder to capture attention for longer periods of time, right? As people become more interconnected, and I would say this, not to a fault of theirs, but there is that level of need that, well, hey, I can't be in a classroom for three hours and lose connection with the world, right? Um, but what I've noticed is when people are actually stepping out and taking this move, and I've seen this in the comments on my article all over the place, and people are saying, yes, this is a good move. I'm feeling good. And some people actually share their experiences. And I said, well, I've been doing this and I feel better than ever, right? Well, and it's a true detox in a true nature. Yeah, pretty soon we can get them all dial phones again. We could get them landlines again. <laughs> it'll, it'll be even even more low tech. One of the things I found too is that, uh, and this is something that I think uh, generations that didn't grow up with smartphones have had to try to get used to, is that there's so much information on a smartphone about you, photos, geolocation, yes. GPS. You know that if if you feel like you're worried about your privacy, for instance, yes. having a not having a not as smartphone basically cuts you off a bit from that. It doesn't. It allow. It means that people can't really be sort of sorting through your life, whether it be, you know, 
I, I know stories yeah. about about spouses and mates who are constantly sort of spying on their on their partners through their phones. And with a and that sounds awful, by the way. But with a yeah. with a with a flip phone, you can't do that. You can't sort of it's you're not an open book on a flip phone. You're not as much of an open book, that's for sure. And, you know, that was also one of the other reasons I discussed some people are parting ways with smartphones is that idea of, well, I need some privacy, right? Comes at an interesting time, Ben, because now when we're looking at, you know, the whole buzz about AI and chat GPT, you would think with the emergence of such game-changing technologies that one would say, you know what, I want to try more, I want to do more things. It's actually having some sort of a reverse effect where people are saying, well, I don't know how I feel about my information being used all the time. Mind you, with advanced models that are out there, the information is used on a more accurate and a more aggregated and more grand level. So one needs to think very deeply of how your information is used, especially with the integration of even more sophisticated AI-driven models. But I think ultimately... It's the discussion of we need to sit back and say, well, how do we build a healthy relationship with technology? It's there. Smartphones are not going to go anywhere. We need to stop and think, well, how do we build a good relationship or a healthy relationship? Yeah, I guess for that generation, I mean, it's it's not a huge movement. The vast majority of, of all people yeah. have have smartphones, right? As opposed sure. to as opposed to anything else. But it's interesting too that the companies have sort of real recognized that there is a niche here that they can that they can sell to. Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, and and there is you know, and and that's part of branding, right? Um, uh, some companies build strong relationships uh, with customers through that you know using that power of nostalgia, saying you know what. We understand there is a small market for it and we will connect with you. And here's what's interesting. Companies that are able to tailor to deep niche markets, what will happen is they build an added level of loyalty with these specific individuals because this is, or specific companies who offer niche products are the only companies that offer this. So customers feel a sense of being heard and their voice is connecting to what the company has to offer. So an interesting combination then of nostalgia that we've seen it, we know, with the return of vinyl, with the return of a lot of sort of more uh, older technologies, uh, digital detoxing, which is a big thing, I think, privacy concerns. So all of that is sort of combining. I guess the the interesting thing that you point out in your article as well is that uh, while sales are still pretty low, that uh, people predict a bit of an, of an upswing in the sales of things like flip phones in the coming years because of exactly what you've been pointing out. Yeah. And I, I think I think there will be an uptick. I want to clarify, though, um, when I say an uptick, I don't think we will walk in the streets and everyone will be holding a flip phone again. No. I, I don't think that's. No, no. Um, or if, there, if it's a flip phone, it's those new digital. It's the one that's a smartphone that flips. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think that's the case. But what I think will happen is through periods of detox, dumber phones or I guess dumb phones. Yeah will be used in conjunction with having a smartphone. So having a smartphone, it's there. It's not going to go anywhere. But what's going to be added, given the little cost associated with having, I guess, a dumb phone, people may have the two versions and may revert to periods of time, smaller, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, where some people just use solely their dumb phones 
to kind of disconnect a little bit, right? right. It can be used maybe on vacations when one is going on a vacation, you know, you want to- or, or out for a night, if you, out for a night if you don't want to be distracted by your phone, right? You just want to make sure people know you can communicate with the people you're supposed to meet up with, but you don't necessarily want to be, you know, in many places at once as your smartphone tends to encourage you to be, uh, that you can yeah. just bring along, a, bring along a flip phone and you're, you're, you're still communicado, right? People can still get in touch with yeah. you, but you're not being distracted by, by all that sits on that phone. Exactly. And and it's not reliant on self-discipline. You know, you're not turning like a, an airplane mode on or anything. It's no, you really don't have your phone. So you're, you're actively disconnected. You can, people can just call you or send you a quick text, but otherwise it's, it's that, you know, level of connecting with the real world while still having access to the technology. And I think if there will be an uptick and I, I foresee a possible marginal uptick, if you will, that marginal uptick will come from these or those individuals who are looking to supplement uh, their existing use with something that allows them to step out for a little bit and you know reconnect with the world and the true world as um, as we live in as we live in. Well, as they say, everything that is old is new again. Omar Faris, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me.